You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hey, everybody. Rick here. If you've been following along with both seasons of this podcast, you know that I've been laying out the case for cybersecurity first principle thinking. In other words, instead of continuing to incrementally improve our security posture year after year with the latest shiny objects from the security vendor portfolios, we identify the atomic thing that we are trying to accomplish, not a list of things, but the thing, and then build our InfoSec program from there. I have made the case in this series that the atomic thing for all network defenders is this, reducing the probability of a material impact to our organization due to a cyber event. If that is the case, then the immediate next thing we need is an ability to greatly reduce the attack surface to our organization. Now, there are a lot of tasks you can perform to accomplish that, but you can generally lump them all under a strategy umbrella called zero trust. I have written an essay on the topic and published a podcast about it, too. If you haven't consumed those materials yet, you should probably stop this podcast right here until you do. Go ahead. I'll wait. Back so soon? Fantastic. The reason I put you through that exercise is to understand the through line of this podcast series and why we are talking about identity management now. If you are buying everything I have said about first principle thinking and zero trust, and you know that we want to restrict access to your organization's material data islands to only those employees, contractors, and partners who absolutely need them to do their jobs. By extension, the only way to do that is to have some sort of identity management program. You can't do zero trust without identity management. And that is why we are talking about identity management in this show. But much to my surprise, what I learned by bringing several CISO experts to the hash table this week is that many identity management programs are not tied to zero trust strategies. They are mostly run out of IT organizations trying to support HR policies about onboarding and separation. I didn't see that coming. My name is Rick Howard. You are listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Today, we are talking to three cybersecurity thought leaders about their identity management experiences in the real world. 
you listened to the last podcast on the history of identity management, you will recall that our current state of identity management tools like Active Directory, SAML, and the OpenID OAuth pair became stable to use starting in the early 2000s, but really by 2014. On the other hand, Zero Trust as an idea started to form in the early 2000s too, but didn't become substantial until John Kinderbog wrote the original white paper in 2010. But even now, 10 years after publication, most network defenders struggle with implementing a robust Zero Trust program. Now, there are lots of reasons for this, and I highlighted some of them from the Zero Trust podcast episode. My point is that network defenders and IT teams started implementing identity management programs long before Zero Trust became a thing. For network defenders, we were using these systems for telemetry intelligence collection during incident response operations, like who was victim zero in the breach attempt, or for rudimentary data loss prevention programs, like who is exfiltrating large volumes of PowerPoint slides. But identity management in the early days wasn't part of the security function. We were and are consumers of the intelligence it provides, but we didn't run it. The question I had for our CISO experts at the hash table this week was, is it time for identity management to be a formal part of the security function? All of them said they owned the policy, but that the actual implementation and day-to-day wrench turning were done by other groups. Rick Doden is the CISO for Carolina Complete Health. He has been on the hash table with me before, and he agreed with my assessment of the work assignment today, but also that he had to evolve to that concept. When I was a consultant here, it was it was in the security function, and I kind of questioned that, you know, because this is a foundational thing of people's identity. Now, the rules by which identity is accessed and, you know, password strength and role, you know, ro- uh, uh, um, permissions for roles and logging and auditing and monitoring is a security thing. But the, the you know, the, the provisioning and deprovisioning of credentials is, it would certainly, I think, be an IT fundamental thing as well as, you know, issuing a, a, a hardware device or, you know, even access and, and the access to certain things would be an IT function very similar on security operations, right? Where, you know, IT would be responsible for standing up the security sensors, the Palo Altos, you know, and, and the care and feeding of keeping them patched and managed it. But, you know, the rule set would be defined by security, monitoring and response to it would be, you know, handled by the security team. Susie Smybert is the CISO of Finning, a Canadian company that is the world's largest Caterpillar dealer, you know, the big tractors, among many other things. This is her first appearance on the hash table, but she's an old friend of mine and wicked smart. If you want the unvarnished truth, ask Susie. She manages identity management at Finning in a similar way as Rick Doten. I'm in charge of it, though we, uh, every cybersecurity person will tell you they get work done through others and other teams. So while the overall accountability and responsibility for it falls under my portfolio, we do partner and leverage other teams across our technology uh, group to help move the needle forward, help maintain processes, train users, and do support. It's managed outside of the stock, though we do have an individual for the purpose of operating the platform, the blinking light, the logging, the upkeeping of it that resides in our security operation centers, uh, but it's a separate team. Helen Patton is the CISO for Ohio State University, and by the way, the new chairman of the Cybersecurity Canon Project, 
one of my favorite committees to belong to. She had this to say about identity management as part of the security function. So at Ohio State, right from the beginning, actually. So identity has always been part of the security function. And even before I was at Ohio State, when I was at JP Morgan, I also managed the identity management teams there as well. So, well, some of them. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a core piece of the function and we've been growing it for the last seven years. Before identity management started to become part of the formal security function, what did we use the analytics coming off those systems for? Here's Rick Doten again, the CISO of Carolina Complete Health. Well, certainly, you know, timing, you know, where did it come from? What devices it come from? You know, how long were they? I mean, anything that you're, you know, if you're doing an investigation, you know, these things are kind of there. There are other things about, uh, you know, that you might be able to correlate across multiple things. Is like where, how many things were they logged into at once? Or did they log into something, you know, within a time frame that, you, they couldn't feel, they logged in in New York and, and then five minutes later, they got a login from Paris, you know, those kinds of things to help identify if you're doing some threat hunting and looking at data that way. Uh, some people use it from a behavior uh, monitoring standpoint where, you know, our users attempting to go to things that they don't have access to. Helen Patton, the OSU CISO, also agrees. There's a whole bunch of things. So, um, again, especially since I'm in a system where students and everything are all in one identity system, authentication logs tell me a lot. They tell me where physically someone is. They tell me what time of day they like to work. They tell me what systems they like to access and for how often and how frequently. There's a whole bunch of user behavior analytics that come out of just Helen logged in, Helen logged out, Helen tried to log in, Helen failed to log in. Those kinds of things paint a, paint a really nice digital picture of what people do typically, which then allows you to make alerts and automation based on the non-typical, which is really useful. There isn't another kind of system for me that gives that same... Um, depth of, of nuance around the context of what people are doing and why. As I said at the top of the show, I think that zero trust is the main reason to have an identity management program. When I asked the CISOs at the hash table this week if zero trust had become important enough to subsume the identity management program for their organizations, all of them said, not yet. Here is Susie again, the Finning CISO. At this point, it's more a parallel effort. We're, we're gonna, they're gonna merge as we grow through the journey of our Zero Trust initiative, but it's not something that it's all encompassing at this time. It's a spectrum of maturity for the organization. There are things you ought to do before you go into a higher level, and they will all contribute to making us in a very solid position for a zero trust across the board, if we want to say that. I don't know that we'll ever get there because there's so many connected device or processes and activities. But today, they are a parallel initiative. Depending on the size of your organization, in one of our small branch, we might not be able to have the same segregation of duty or zero trust in place as we would in a major head office because one staff might be doing multiple roles. So you have to be having a business context as you go through that. Otherwise, you can create more pain than good. Interestingly, Helen at OSU ran into a political problem with her zero trust program. Her professors and administrators didn't like the idea that she didn't trust them. 
<laughs> I love that. She had to avoid the name Zero Trust altogether. Instead, she called it context-aware authentication and leveraged her identity management program to accomplish some of her Zero Trust goals. Oh, for, for me, it's core. One, I'm biased because I've been in the identity space for so long. But two, I, I know the origins of Zero Trust were really around networking and network segmentation and things like that. In higher ed, networks have never been architected the way they have been in private sector, which means networks are particularly porous and um, but big and lots of data flow through them. So the way we've managed um, security just generally pre-zero trust was using identity and access controls. So when I started thinking about zero trust here at Ohio State, one, I couldn't t use the term zero trust because that made people immediately go, what, you don't trust me? Secondly, I, I, I called it context-aware authentication, which was a really big mouthful. And then I'd have to explain what context-aware meant and I had to then explain what authentication meant. But it was, it was zero trust in terms of knowing when to give someone access to something. It wasn't about segmentation when we first started talking about it here. So I, I've always sort of led with my identity chin in that regard. All identity management systems should have some basic capabilities like federation, extra authentication, privileged access management, and the ability to manage your employee's identity throughout its life cycle. Let's start with federation. Here's Helen again. One of the things I really like about being in higher ed, there's always been a need for researchers from different institutions to be able to collaborate. So we've always had federated identity. Well, not always. We've worked early on having federated identity management options. Um, so, for example, if, if I'm visiting my friends at the University of Michigan, I can go up there and log in with my OSU credentials and get access to the things that those credentials allow me to have on the U of M campus. The service providers have agreements between one another to trust each other. Whether or not you're authorized to get into an application still happens at the local level, but the, the identification of who you are uh, is federated. In a federated model, you get this kind of transitive property of trust. If the University of Michigan trusts Ohio State University, and Ohio State University trusts Helen, then the University of Michigan trusts Helen too. As Helen says, though, U of M trusts Helen's identity. In other words, they believe it is her, but they still authorize her access to U of M's resources locally. She doesn't get carte blanche access just because she is Helen. U of M decides what she gets access to. For extra authentication, what we are talking about is the ability to require additional and perhaps higher order authentication if certain conditions are met. For example, if the CEO is trying to access the mergers and acquisitions database, we might want to require not only her user ID and password that she uses to hit the internal website, but also maybe some form of two-factor authentication too, because the M&A database is sensitive and we want to make sure that the CEO is who she really says she is. Here's Rick Doten again, the Carolina Complete Health CISO. So what you're describing is risk, we, we call risk-based authentication, meaning like if you're coming from a different machine than before, or you're ac accessing something that's especially sensitive or something that you haven't accessed in a while, 
they may prompt something else. And there are, are applications, you know, mobile apps that were very popular about, uh, you know, six or seven years ago that would then be able to enhance that by either saying, oh, all right, well, here's a, you know, here's a, you know, putting your fingerprint. Now I want you to speak a phrase and now I want you to, you know, look in the camera and take your picture or that kind of thing. It's not something that I don't believe we do in my organization, you know, but it's certainly something that is, you know, there are there are cases where it certainly is prudent to do, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, somebody, you know, it, it, you're doing more sensitive things, either as a as a, uh, a customer or a user. For privileged access management, it is analogous to the pseudo command from the Graybeard Unix wizard system admins that are listening out there. You don't run in administrator mode all day long while you work on your Unix machine. In my case, back in the day, the old Sun Solaris machines. No. What you did was you ran as a normal user until you needed to change something with administrator privileges. You typed in sudo, spelled S-U-D-O, which meant switch user and do something, temporarily. Once you were done, you went back to being just a normal user again. That is what privileged access management is on a much smaller scale. Here's Helen again. Privileged account management is simply the management of accounts that provide someone with elevated access within a system. So typically, for example, a network administrator has privileged levels of access to the network. It's not just that they can log on to the network with their device like any old end user. They can make changes to the configuration of a network or that kind of thing, right? So the accounts that a, a network administrator would use to do those privileged activities are often different than the accounts they would use as a general Joshmo user to access the network. And you need to make sure that the management of those privileged accounts receives a higher level of oversight uh, to ensure, one, that certainly that they don't get hacked, but two, things like that they don't make changes that bring down the whole network system, that that their use of those, they're not using those accounts for daily use when they don't really need to, that they're only using those accounts based on a, an approved change, for example. So there are systems out there that are designed like a password vault. Um, well, they are a password vault specifically for these privileged accounts. And the thing that's unique about privileged accounts is often they're shared by multiple people. Um, so the privileged account systems will also allow for users to use a privileged account without having to know the password and having the password automatically change after every instance of use. Super helpful. The last feature that is essential to the identity management system is the ability to manage your identities through the life cycle of their need from onboarding to lateral job movement to promotions to leaving the company. Susie has a term for this that is just perfect. She calls it entitlement accumulation. You have someone that starts a front desk and then they move into a support role and then accounting and HR and they move around, but they retain and accumulate entitlement as they move through the organization with their tenure. And that is especially prevalent with senior leaders because to develop senior leaders, generally they get move around organization. So you have senior leaders with access across a slew of business function just because they've been, you know, developed and grown through the organization. And that's a, a high risk if that identity was to be compromised. 
So there is entitlement accumulation where we don't want to see it happen at times if employee move roles. Uh, but uh, we do regular certification of entitlement, and then we remove a lot of access every single time we go through those exercises. What we've been doing is integrating our IG platform or, um, or other tools that manage an entity with the system of record for HR. So as a role or anything is changed in our HRI systems, there's automated workflow that trigger entitlement review or change of entitlement um, in, in a suite of systems. Not the entirety of our organization, but there's a lot of automation to help us um, not have hands-on keyboard because we're a large organization that could consume an FTE full-time, then it's commoditized work. It's not cool work. It's not glamour. It's boring. So why would we want to hire a security professional to do something tedious like this? So we want to automate it. The last thing to consider, and probably the strongest reason that identity management is not part of the security function in most organizations, is governance and regulation. Uh, for us, there's a heavy reliance on our identity governance administration for the purpose of meeting of regulatory requirements as a public company. Um, if you had internal audit or external audits identifying uh, potential for improvement with the findings pertaining to identity, our identity governance administration processes and platform help us eliminate all of those um, recurring findings. We have many regulations we must meet. So if we think of our UK, we have GDPR, we are public, so we have Sarbanes-Oxley, we have some PCI footprint. We have a lot of regulatory requirements across the globe. And every single regulatory requirements has needs surrounding identity management. And there you have it. Your identity management system, however you do it, should have some way to federate with your partners, automatically ask your employees for extra authentication when the situation is necessary, have a means for regular users to switch to privileged user status to do some work, and to keep track of everybody that is doing that. And finally, have a way to manage all of your identities across the entire life cycle of work. If you have all of that, then you will do better meeting your compliance obligations and have telemetry for your incident response teams. But as you are thinking about all of this, consider that if you are ever to get your Zero Trust program off the ground, you need to install a robust identity management system or you will never start rolling down the runway at all. Perhaps it is time to move the identity management program under the security function in order to support this major strategy plank of your InfoSec program called Zero Trust. If Zero Trust is a first principle component to your InfoSec program, like I believe it is, Maybe it is best to have security own the identity management responsibility. And that's a wrap. Next week, we will be talking about red team and blue team operations. You don't want to miss that. In the meantime, if you agreed or disagreed with anything I have said in the last two episodes about identity management, hit me up on LinkedIn and we can continue the conversation there. The CyberWire's CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions. And the mix of the episode and the remix of the theme song was done by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening.
If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO PRO to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.